Um, we're going to be continuing in our series here for Christmas, for Advent. Um, as we focus this morning on joy, um, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 2, um, looking mainly at verses 1 through 12. And uh, while joy won't be every part of this sermon, I hope we see that it's the, it's the finish line, if you will, of all that we talk about. It's the trajectory. It's um, the direction in which we're called to go. Let's look to the text now, starting at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, a star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest of the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down. And they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country and by another way. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you now and we thank you for your word uh, this morning before us a word that we've heard over and over again, uh, and we pray this morning that you might make it fresh and new to us, that you might use it this morning to remind us of who this little child is, that he is the great king, and that we, like the wise men, might not be able to help, but bow our knee with great joy before him this day. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen. Now, as I was reading the text, did you sense the drama? I fear that we miss it. We've heard the, the story over and over again, and we miss the drama here that king is born. We should rejoice with great joy. Were you disturbed as you read about Herod? Were, were you fearful for the newborn king? As you likely know the story and what's going to happen and how he is going to seek to kill that newborn king and kill, kill many young boys. As we read these narratives, as we read this morning, we, we need to see it afresh. I, I hope we won't just see facts before us, but that ultimately we'll see and be pointed uh, to our Savior and be reminded of the wonder of the gospel and pointed towards the joy that we are called to have. Now, so that we can kind of get ourselves situated, we need to understand that this, we're not quite sure how old Jesus is. He's, he's two or younger. Um, this morning, I'm probably going to just refer to him as a toddler, just to kind of give us a placeholder. 
Um, but it's somewhere in there. We can tell from later on whenever Herod goes to kill. He kills all those boys that are two years and, and, and younger. And they're no longer in the stable. They're, they're now in a, home, in, in, in a home. Now, what I want us to see this morning is we see a series of people whose lives are totally disrupted. Okay. The, these wise men, their lives are disrupted, right? Now, a couple of things about the wise men first. We don't know how many there were. Okay. We have no reason to think they're kings, so let's just kind of push those things out of our, out of our way. Um, they probably come um, from hundreds of miles away, probably from Persia or, or Babylon. And these men, they're, they're stargazers. They're astrologers. They study the sky and, and try to tell the future some way or another by it. And they've seen this incredible star. They're likely very wealthy individuals. In order to be able to travel like this, they probably came with a large caravan and all of this to see a toddler. Their life disrupted for probably months to travel to see this toddler. Herod's life, as we read, is disrupted as he becomes totally disturbed by what's going on. The religious establishment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that describes that they too, they, they too, their life is disrupted as they think of the Messiah being born. Well, I want us to look at these different folks who are disrupted. And first of all, I want us to look at the political establishment that's disrupted, and that's mainly through Herod, right? Many of you, do, do, do you know who Louis XIV is? Louis the Great of France? He thought a lot about himself. I mean, I guess you got to think a lot about yourself if you're going to call yourself the great, right? <laughs> he, he was famous for saying, like, I am the state, right? He liked to be called the, the sun king. And why do you like to be called the sun king? Because everything revolves around the sun. I mean, he thought a lot of himself. Now, whenever he died, he had a few grand funeral planned. And it's hard to know exactly what's fact and, and what's legend, um, but it's said in, the, in that chapel, in, the, in that, that sanctuary, he had it dimly lit. He had all this planned ahead, dimly lit. There in the front in the middle was a golden casket with one candle lit upon it. Why? So that everybody's eyes for one last time would be on, on Louis the Great. Now, this is where we don't quite know what, the, what really happened. We do know what was said, though, for sure. One telling of the story the bishop uh, proceeds up front before he speaks and he blows out the candle. What we do know is what he said, whether or not the candle was blown out or not, but he said, only God is great. Something he could have never said while Louis XIV was alive. And now he proclaims it, that there is only one who is great. Kings like to think a lot about themselves, right? Herod, in our story this morning, he thought a lot about himself. He's a whole lot like Louis the Great, too, called Herod the Great. Why? Because he liked himself. He liked his ruling. He liked his power. And he was not a very nice guy. How did he keep his power? He killed at least one wife. He killed a mother-in-law. He killed several of his children. He had numerous Jewish leaders killed. And, of course, as you continue on in Matthew 2, he had all those young boys killed. All to protect what? To protect his power. He, he wanted power. He wanted to be the king. He wanted to be the center of everything. He wanted to be Herod the Great, the one who controls all things. Now, many of us, if we might be able to relate in some way, how would you like to be called the Great? 
people going on and the world being about you, the world revolving around you. It sounds quite attractive to us. In some ways, we might like to try that on, wouldn't we? To be in control of all things. I mean, I wouldn't mind, you know, Steve the Great has a nice little ring to it, right? Maybe not. I mean, we we joke, but I think there's ways in which we would like it. We certainly would like the world to revolve around us. We certainly live as though it does so often. And so it's to this Herod the Great that these wise men come. They've seen a star, and and remember, these are astrologers, so they try to put everything together, and when there's big astrological phenomenon taking place, you know, they want want meaning to be behind it, and often they thought meaning was the birth of a king, and so they've come. It's likely they had some sort of access to Scripture, As they come asking, um, where is he who was born king of the Jews? They seem to have some knowledge, though maybe rudimentary. And as they come, as they follow, they go to the natural place, right? They go to Jerusalem. And where do they go in Jerusalem? They go to the palace. Because where else would you expect to find the newborn king? And so they go, and they actually get an audience with Herod. We read in verse 2, they ask, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. What's Herod's reaction? When he heard it, verse 3, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why is he so troubled? He's so troubled, first of all, because this is one who was born king of the Jews. Now, this would have slapped Herod right where it really hurt because Herod was not born king of the Jews. He, He became king of the Jews by the sword. He became king of the Jews by political machinations, by making all sorts of agreements with Caesars. He would have been very jealous of one born king of the Jews. And not to mention the fact that if you're king and there's a new king in town, that kind of bodes a lot of problems for you, right? It's not going to work out very well. And so he is troubled, but not just he is troubled, but also all of Jerusalem. Why? Because if Herod isn't happy, no but he's happy, right? That's the kind of person this was. I mean, oh no, this is upsetting Herod. If Herod is disturbed, you're going to be disturbed as well. Now, as we just think about it, and it comes throughout this story, there's this constant contrast. Here we have a contrast between Herod and and these, these wise men. These wise men, we have no reason to believe that they're worshipers of Yahweh, okay? They're, they're, they're not Jewish, And they probably aren't coming to worship in like a formal sense, like we've come to worship this morning. They they, they come to give honor to a newborn king. They would have likely done the same for a new king in Rome, a new Caesar. They would have likely done the very same thing. But what's incredible here is the contrast. That these wise men, these Gentiles, these non-Jewish men, they come and they want to give honor to this newborn king. The bringing presence. And we have King Herod who, what? Who wants to kill the newborn king, right? Who should be excited about the newborn king? These wise men who aren't even from the area? Or the supposed Jewish king? The one with at least a little bit of Jewish roots? The one who's billed himself as a Jewish king? The one who at least knows enough to ask them where the Christ was to be born in verse four, right? He knows enough to be expecting a Messiah. Shouldn't he be excited? But for Herod, what does this mean? 
For Herod, this means that his whole world would be disrupted. He's upset by a little toddler. He can find no joy in these circumstances. It means a disruption to his whole way of thinking, a complete disruption to his power. And so what does he go on to do but to try to kill the toddler? How can this toddler bring such a great disruption? What is it that's so disturbing to Herod that there's another king, a greater king than him, a king that is really born king of the Jews, okay? One that is king by right, not by force. Reminded of the words of Paul in Romans 13, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Herod's finding this out the hard way. The only reason he has any authority is because there is a greater king. He doesn't like it at all. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, we'd kind of like to be called the great in some sense or another. We'd love to be in charge. And in fact, I think we often believe the lie that if we were in charge, really in charge, it would bring us great joy. That we could find real joy then, we could find true joy If we were only enthroned, we'd get our way. We'd have what we want. And so we, like Herod, we get upset when anything dethrones us, when anything tries to mess with our power, with our strength. Maybe we're not as different from Herod as we wish we were. I mean, we just don't have the power that he did. What would we do if we had his complete power and authority that he had in his day? Now, it's not just Herod that is disrupted. The Jewish, the, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they're, they're also disrupted by what's going on here. I remember, and I've heard a couple of examples recently in talks, but there's this new Netflix series on Jeffrey Dahmer. I haven't seen it. don't necessarily encourage any of us to run out and see it, but... I remember when the whole trial and stuff was going on, I think I may have been in middle school, but what I remember more was in college reading an article. And in reading that article, I found out that he had become a Christian. And I remember getting mad. There's no way he's a Christian. That's not fair. He shouldn't be allowed to be able to, after what he's done. Now, I know we're not supposed to think like that, right? Maybe the rest of you don't struggle with such thoughts, but I did. And yes, we want to say there's no one so far gone that, that Jesus cannot save. But we have those nagging thoughts, don't we? Or we, we like to put our, our religiosity in a box and maybe like, well, but not them. We want to keep it in ways for ourselves. I remember Steve Brown, one of my professors, telling a story of how he got a phone call from a chaplain in a prison the prison where Jeffrey Dahmer was held after Dahmer had been killed. And he called to tell Steve that Jeffrey Dahmer had been reading his book whenever he died. It was laying there, I think, on his bed. And Steve's reaction, I don't remember the exact words, but it was basically, I don't want to know that. I don't want to be a part of that. Part of him being a Christian? No. Isn't that sometimes how we really think at the heart of it? That same chaplain wrote a book, and in it he mentioned one of the questions that 
that Dahmer had. And it was, it's heaven for me too. It's heaven for me too. And Chaplin went on to write, I think many people are resentful of him asking that question. Because no, we like our religion the way we want it. We like to keep things in a box and have it our way. The religious leaders in Jerusalem that day certainly liked things the way they had it. And they seemed to not want any change, did they? Verse 4, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them of where the Christ was to be born. So they hear what's going on. They, they hear about these wise men. They hear about the star. And what do they do? They immediately know. They know exactly what's going on here. They immediately go to Micah and, uh, and quote from there along with a little bit of Samuel. And this is what they say, verse six. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They immediately went to the scriptures. They knew it backwards and forwards. And they immediately knew what was going on. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one. They know. We read on verse 8. Herod calls the, the, the wise men back and he says, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Yeah, right. That's, I don't think at all what's in his mind. But what do the wise men do? They go to Bethlehem. What do these religious leaders not do? They fail to join the Magi in their quest, don't they? And it's even their successors and maybe even some of the same men who are going to go on later on in the book of Matthew to do what? To seek this toddler's death as he's grown up into a man. You see, for these religious leaders, this is incredibly unwelcoming news. This turns everything in their world upside down. This means for them surely a loss of power. This, the things that they've been looking to for, for joy. Are taken away, the religious leaders, the ones above all in this story who know, who know exactly what's going on, they fail to go while these Gentiles go and worship. The religious leaders, they should have gone running, shouldn't they? But they didn't. Why? I think they're looking for joy in all the wrong places. They're looking for fulfillment in all the wrong places. And this toddler was a total disruption to their plans. Now, I don't want to do this. I was hoping that maybe we'd be a little bit farther along in the sermon and I could skip this part. It would be far easier for us not to talk about this this morning. In verse 12, we get just a little bit of a hint of something else going on. The wise men are, are told to, to go. <laughs> don't, don't, don't go back by Jerusalem. Don't talk to Herod. And of course, we know why. The very reason that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are also told to flee. And we read about the reason in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the, the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. As you go on to read there in verse 17, we have Rachel weeping 
And as she weeps, what is she doing? She's representing the mothers of Bethlehem weeping over their lost sons. Jesus is safely evacuated to Egypt. Many others are left dead. Couldn't we have left us out this morning? What a downer, right? Isn't Christmas supposed to be happy? No. We're called to find joy. We're called to find joy in Christ. But where can we find it amidst this massacre? One article puts it this way. There is more to the story. Because the narrative takes an unexpected turn. The Messiah, Christ, Jesus, does does not grow up to become a force equal. An opposite to the Herods and Pilots and Caesars. Rulers who build kingdoms to hide the blood of their many innocent victims. You see, Jesus' protection in Egypt is not simply an act of nepotism for a favorite son. No. He's protected in Egypt because there's a greater suffering reserved for him. And the weeping, the weeping of the mothers of Bethlehem must be answered. And it's answered by his blood. Their weeping is answered when that one who was a toddler, who was rescued, is raised from the dead. The hope for those weeping mothers, the hope for you and I as as we find ourselves struggling through life, maybe even struggling through a difficult Christmas season. The place where, where we can find true joy is not found in our daily circumstances, but in that toddler rescued to Egypt who grew to be a man, who shed his blood, who went to his death, who conquered death so that we might have new life, so that we might have true joy. And the way in which we find that true joy is knowing that this toddler was rescued while, yes, many others suffered, so that he might pay a greater penalty, that he might suffer even more, so that he could bring to us today and to those mothers of Bethlehem in that day true joy a joy that supersedes our circumstances, a joy that is ultimately found in Jesus. Can you find it there amidst the difficulty of this life? Can you find it there amidst the weeping? Can you find joy in the one who went to his death, in the one who rose from the dead for you? Can you? Now, Jesus, also, we need to speak of another group that he disrupted. We've already mentioned them several times. That's the wise men. They follow the star, and it leads them all the way to a house. I mean, can you imagine the scene? These Gentile wise men, Gentile astrologers, showing up at this house. I mean, does Mary answer the door and has like toddler Jesus on her hip or is he running around? And they come in and they fall down and they worship him. Verse 10, they saw the star. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child 
with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, understand something that we haven't said. These are the last people you expect to be worshiping Jesus. These are astrologers. These are people condemned in the scriptures. People, Jewish people, would have absolutely nothing to do with. I mean, they're almost, I don't know if they're quite in the category of Jeffrey Dahmer, but they're pretty close. Astrologers are people you aren't even supposed to go close to. And yet here they are, these sinful men, these stargazers, and they've come to worship the newborn king. And they bring gifts, don't they? Expensive gifts, rare gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These these gifts may have even been the very means that financed what must have been a very expensive journey to Egypt. And they come and they worship. Now remember this worship. It may just be a kind of paying homage. It doesn't mean that that these these guys, that that they recognize Jesus' divinity, that they really saw him for who they are. But, but what we should see is, as one commentator says, we need to understand what Matthew's trying to point out here, that they worshiped better than they knew. And that if the Israelites won't worship, the religious leaders, Herod, if, if the Israelites won't worship, then the Gentiles will. That's the picture painted for us here. The supposed believers in our story act like unbelievers. And the unbelievers come and worship. It's it's, it's, it's crazy when you think about it. This contrast between the eagerness of the the magi to, to want to worship and the hostility of the Jewish leaders and of Herod and his court. What are the these wise men do, verse 10, they, they come to the house. They, when they come there, what do they do? They, they, they saw the star. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is like joy, joy, joy. This is like they, they had joy upon joy. They leapt with joy. And the ones who should have been leaping were nowhere to be found. The ones who knew immediately where to go in the scriptures were nowhere to be found. So the wise men leapt instead. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but can you imagine what people must have said when these wise men left and then when they returned home? Where are you going? Where have you been? Oh, we just went on a couple of month journey. And, and, and what'd you go to do? Oh, we went to go worship a newborn king and We gave him presents, and then we came home. That's all? Yes, that's all. And it was enough. You see, unlike everyone else in the story, they set off on their journey, it seems, not to find joy in building up their own kingdoms, but they go to find joy and the one born king of the Jews, one whom they didn't even completely know or probably understand who he was. And yet they go and worship. They, they went and they worshiped and they gave him presents and they returned home 
And yes, that was all. And it was enough. To be able to worship before him. To give him what they had. Let's not miss as Jesus, this toddler, comes in and disrupts all these people's lives. He disrupts our life this morning too, doesn't he? If he doesn't, then we haven't been listening well or I haven't been preaching very well. We'll assume the latter, I guess. Let's not miss that he's come to disrupt our kingdom too. To take our eyes off of those places that we look to, that we, those things that we think are going to somehow bring us joy. You're not going to find joy in building up your own little kingdom. You're not going to find true joy in your job, in your family, and your friends, or any of the other places you may run to. You're not going to find it in your sin. You're not going to find it in your addiction. Now, you may run to all these things, and they may bring you momentary happiness, and often they do, don't they? But you will only find true joy. You will only find true joy in Christ, in the Messiah, in the promised one that, that everybody except for the wise man in our, in, our, in our story seemed to be totally missing. You know, we gather here each week for worship right? In the world's eyes, us gathering here this morning, worshiping, praising, hearing the word, it must be as silly as these wise men going on these, this months-long journey to just bow down for a few minutes and give some presents. Oh, but it means everything. Oh, it means everything. As you, as we leave here today, as we go out into our week, do we go out knowing where true joy is found? Now, finding true joy, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we're always happy, right? I think that's part of the problem with Herod, religious leaders. They're looking, what they're really looking for is happiness. And it's momentary and it's fleeting. And they totally miss joy. And it doesn't mean that at times we won't le- weep like the mothers of Bethlehem. But regardless, regardless of circumstances, we're able to find true joy. True joy as we just go and have the privilege of worshiping Jesus and praising him. Paul puts it this way. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Is that enough for you? Is that enough? Oh, how we need to learn that it is enough. And it's precisely what we need to be found in him, united to our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who who came in the form of a babe, the one who went all the way to his death, the one who rose from the dead, also that we might have life 
so that we might be united to him, so that we might be able to gather here this morning and worship him. True joy. It's not found in our kingdoms. True joy is found when we worship the one true king. True joy is found as painful as it may be at times. True joy is found when we are dethroned and he is enthroned. That's why we gather each week to remind ourselves that it's about him, that it's about our savior and that we are willing, as Paul said, to count it all as rubbish in order that we may gain Christ and be found in him. Is that enough for you? Is it enough? Let's pray. Father, we so often look in so many different directions and to so many different places to fulfill our life, to find joy, to find, oh, we look all over the place. And yet there you are the whole time. Would you teach our hearts to find our joy, not in the things of this world, the things of this world that are brittle and will break and rust and rot. You help it to find it in our Savior, the one who shed his blood for us. Would you help us this day, we go into this week, to find our joy, the only true joy in this world, the only place it can be found. Help us to find it in our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stay.